Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Now, we live in a time where it's not unusual for people to ask, why is God allowing the various things that are happening to our society happen? And a biblical answer is because we have failed to follow God's law. And a lot of people will say, no, 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 Christians do follow God's law. We say things like abortion is wrong. We'll speak out against homosexuality and same-sex marriage. But they don't usually go beyond that recognizing that God's law encompasses every area of life and thought. And our justice system, the way it is currently set up, has many elements that are part of it that are unbiblical. And unless the people of God recognize every area where the various institutions, whether it's the family, the church, the state, the academy, professions, If we're not in line with God's word, if we're not following God's law, then rather than expecting God's blessing, we should expect God's judgment. Today, I have with me Calcedon President Mark Rushduni, and we're going to discuss an aspect of the law that I dare say most people aren't even familiar with, and it has to do with how criminal cases are to be adjudicated. And on what basis is someone to be declared guilty or not guilty? So, Mark, thanks for joining me today. Good morning, Andrea. It's good to be with you. So specifically, for those who will later want to look into this, Dr. Rushduni, your dad, wrote a position paper back in November of 1985 entitled Justice and Torture. Again, this is something that most Christians would say, huh, what are we talking about here? So why don't you explain a little bit about this backdrop on how criminal cases are to be adjudicated? Well, of course, my father's major thrust for a long time was the importance of biblical law, because we can't have blessing if we're not obeying God. And so much of his ministry was geared around the idea that Christians have to understand how we obey God. And this particular essay was about an aspect of criminal justice and how we've moved away from that in recent years and that it has dire consequences. And the specific issue he was talking about was the grounds for conviction. A lot of people don't realize that Conviction was not easy under biblical law. Most people think that it was a very rigorous type of a law which constrained people at every twist and turn. In reality, conviction required evidence. It required witnesses. Guilt had to be proved. His particular point in that essay, Justice and Torture, was that confession was not grounds for conviction, confession in and of itself, that when confession was demanded in scripture, 
it was a confession to God after the evidence of guilt was overwhelming. And he used the example of, of Achan. It was only after Achan had been proven guilty by evidence that he was instructed that he should confess before God before his execution. But witnesses were required. Now, this comes into play in, in every area of criminal justice. For instance, people think that we would have a bloodbath if there were laws against homosexuality, when real, in reality, that would be a very, very difficult crime to prove. The individuals involved would, in effect, have to testify against themselves, and that would be a form of confession. Evidence was required. It would have to be done publicly, pretty much, as a revolutionary act, so to speak, for homosexuality to actually be proven in a court of law. So the fact was that homosexuality would have existed, but it was not approved. And this is the big difference in a society ruled by biblical law. Crimes that were very difficult, almost impossible to prove, were not approved. And today they are approved of and even encouraged. And the difference is, for instance, uh, a crime against of homosexuality if it was not approved, homosexuals would not be able to adopt children, whereas today it is uh, commonly done. And of course, this is very cruel to the children involved. It puts them in an unnatural environment and an immoral environment, and it leads to further problems down the road and a degeneration of our society. So you said confession is not enough in and of itself to convict someone. Yet, we have today the commonplace idea, well, why do we need witnesses? This person has already confessed. Why does the Bible not find that appropriate grounds for conviction? The why is always difficult when we're talking about biblical law, because God often doesn't tell us why. But here's the source of justice, not man. And therefore, the individual that is accused or suspected is not even the source of the law. Man has to establish the guilt on terms that God declares. And God says, you must have substantial evidence of guilt, witnesses, in order to convict someone of a crime. The justice system is replete with evidences of people who were pressured into making confessions that they later said that was, was done under just a psychological pressure. A smart cop can pressure someone over a period of several hours into confessing, particularly someone of a more limited mental capacity. And this has been done many, many times. And they've later recanted their confession. But the courts will say, well, technically you confess, and therefore we're going to believe your confession. Well, that confession, whether they believe it or not, would not have been substantial enough for a conviction in and of itself. So this makes it so that if confession isn't going to be that which convicts a person and that is enough to make them declared guilty, then intimidation and torture wouldn't be tools that would be effective because just getting someone to say, I did it, or in today's modern world, pleading to a lesser offense, that 
in essence, that wouldn't matter. So ha having somebody plea bargain would not be part of a biblical justice system, would it? Right. It wouldn't. It would be it would completely change your criminal justice system. We're familiar, perhaps, at least people of my generation are familiar with uh, prisoners of war who were criticized for reading a statement or something, confessing their guilt before their communist prison guards. And therefore, that was used as propaganda saying this American admits that he committed crimes against us and therefore he is guilty. But you can pressure people into saying things because people have will weigh the relative merits of being punished or their family being punished. That was often been done, perhaps far more often done, particularly in communist countries. If you do not confess, if you do not uh, sign this statement or and even go on TV and admit your guilt, then your family, including your even your extended family, will suffer severe repercussions, loss of income, etc., and even imprisonment. So torture and pressure is possible when confession is enough for conviction. But when confession is not sufficient and evidence is required, proof is actually required, then that takes the incentive to create an artificial confession away entirely and torture has no place. So it was a means whereby torture was precluded from the entire process. Your father points out that in scripture, the Bible has provisions not only for the accuser, but for the accused. And any form of coercion as opposed to objective facts, is more in line with pagan antiquity than anything having to do with biblical justice, correct? Yes, because what's the purpose of torturing someone into stating some, something? It's because a uh, predetermined outcome is favorable to the prosecutor. When the state is the source of all things, when the ruling class or the, the, the government is the, uh, the standard of all things, then their interest and their demands are important. And therefore, we will prove this person is guilty by forcing a confession from him. When God's justice is preeminent, then man is expected to say, well, to have true justice, you have to know what the facts are. You have to have evidence. You have to have proof. So this, if the standard is God's judgment, then man has to say, well, okay, if, if God's justice was violated, we have to find the evidence of guilt and we have to punish the guilty party. But if the state's interest is foremost and a conviction is necessary to make the state look good or the to make the state look effective, then if an innocent man goes to jail, it's not particularly important. What's most important? God's justice or the interests of the government. So this clearly shows that when you have an overreaching civil government that goes outside the bounds and jurisdictions of God's law, they will stack the deck, so to speak, to make sure that their will is preeminent. And even though many people still think that we take oaths and we swear on the Bible and such, if you're not going to follow God's law, in fact, then whatever you say may sound good, but it's not really a demonstration of being obedient to God. 
Right. And having an artificial standard doesn't always even go to the, the interests of the state or the ruling political party or the power elite. It can be as simple as having a sense of justice, that we need a conviction because this looks bad. This, you know, we don't like this individual or this issue is so important. This particular group needs a conviction to help mold public opinion. And so an injustice was done. For instance, just yesterday, someone convicted of a crime had their conviction overturned. National news. It was on a technicality, but an important technicality because he had been lied to. And the court basically said, you can't do that. I think that was an important decision, regardless of whether he was guilty or not. And he may have been guilty of the offense. But the fact was, it was in the state's interest because of public pressure to get a conviction. Therefore, they violated an agreement with him and they prosecuted him after they asked him to testify under promise of immunity from prosecution. And so we have to go by our word, we have to go by ethics, and we have to go by a higher sense of justice than what's convenient for our immediate desire to see something accomplished. Is it appropriate from a biblical justice point of view to grant somebody immunity like in the case you just referenced and said, okay, we won't prosecute you, even though we know you might be guilty, but because the state had a different reason, let's say, for this person to give information on something, is that within the guidelines of biblical law to grant somebody immunity for an offense that God says should be punished? That's a difficult question. There might be times when there isn't really sufficient evidence to prosecute someone and to encourage their testimony. But very often, someone who is just as guilty as those accused, because perhaps they're not a bigger name, they're a smaller fish, some very, very guilty people have been used as informants to prosecute others. And there's, that is an area where wouldn't be hard to find many cases of a real injustice in the name of justice. And that's the problem when we play games with justice. As I said, there were times when conviction would be very difficult. You know, in criminal syndicates, it's very difficult to get convictions and informants. But when we play fast and loose with the truth, or we basically approve one evil act and let it pass, to convict on another on another act, then we can hardly call that justice. Right. If we can allow one ju- injustice to go unpunished in the hopes that we will punish another injustice, ultimately we're not seeing justice done. We're just selectively getting a conviction so that we look good. Justice has to be focused on God's justice. If it's focused on getting a few convictions to accomplish ultimate good, and yet it's smoothing over other grave evils, then that's not, that's not godly justice. Okay, so I can almost imagine people saying, well, if you need the testimony of two witnesses or you need evidence, then a lot of crimes will go 
unpunished and the perpetrator will be allowed to continue. Yet with our current system, we know that that actually is the case, that a lot of repeat offenders happen. So in the case of something, a crime, let's make it a capital crime where there are no witnesses other than one person, the person who was raped, the person who was abducted and maybe released. How does the Bible make provision for that? Well, that has been discussed and whether other physical evidence can be considered a witness. And I I would think that it could. So you have, you know, DNA, blood, etc., circumstantial evidence, physical evidence. I think these can be considered as witnesses, but yes. Okay. Let's move it from the criminal justice system to the practices of government trying to prevent or win a war. And there have been many, many films, and especially after 9-11, that seem to glorify the idea that you would take enemy combatants and you would torture them to get information. And the torture seemed justified within the context of the story or the event, because it's more important that we save lives. And in our case, American lives. So therefore it was justified to torture those who had been captured. What does the Bible say about that? Well, there's no justification for torture in scripture and you're right and that it's not just in in time of war it's i i i don't have tv anymore but when i did have tv i couldn't watch a lot of the police shows because the police shows often resorted to approving of the police doing that which was illegal and extracting perhaps a confession physically abusing a suspect and the the rationale in this in the in the dramatization was usually that this is someone we know is guilty therefore it's okay to abuse them a little bit if it's for an ultimate good of helping the victim or getting a conviction in other words the end justifies the means very dangerous precedent because when the innocent then are in that position, their abuse becomes justified because it's with a noble cause of supposedly finding, getting justice done. But that is not justice. Justice is a difficult thing in a sinful world. And the Bible recognizes that. And in the Bible, there was provision for crimes that could not be solved. There was the the, the town or the community would offer a sacrifice. The whole idea of the scapegoat represented the idea that some sins would could never be resolved by men and they couldn't be atoned for. Therefore, the, uh, there was an atone, on the Day of Atonement to atone for sins that were uh, unknown or unsolved or never reconciled on, on a human justice level. And the priest would, there were two goats and two, one was slain and sacrificed, its blood was sprinkled on the other one, and that scapegoat was allowed to escape into the wilderness to represent that there were sins that could not be resolved or even confessed that had to be atoned for. So the Bible clearly recognizes that uh, justice on earth cannot be perfect, 
but we can't make shortcuts because when we make shortcuts to justice, what we actually are, are doing is creating a different kind of injustice. And ultimately, the innocent will suffer as well as those who may be guilty. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing increasing amounts of threats of punishment made to the innocent, those who don't toe the line. So all you have to do now politically is declare someone guilty of an offense. Because when you declare a group of people as guilty, then they have to pay for their crimes. There's atonement in the religious sense. And so whenever the government or prevailing party or public opinion decides that a group of people or a particular act is wrong, then there's ultimately, there's going to be a punishment for those people or for that activity. There's going to be some kind of atonement because sin has to be atoned for, for there to be what the Bible calls justification, a declaration of righteousness. But usually with man's perversion of God's justice, there is no justification. There's no end point in when you're declared righteous. It's this false guilt is used as a means of manipulation and control. Which goes back to the message of the gospel. Only through Jesus Christ can sins be atoned for. Only through Jesus Christ can there be true forgiveness of sin, because in a biblical worldview, the primary offended party in terms of any sin, be it sin of omission or sin of commission, is God himself. And so when man takes on a godlike posture, then man will decide what are the crimes that are capital crimes and the means by which people atone. But under humanism, there's never a resolution. There's just only more punishment. Right. And ultimately, the only resolution to uh, evil in society is regeneration. So ultimately, the hope is not a better law enforcement system. The ultimate hope of our society, of any society, is regeneration and the spread of the gospel. God has to remake men in order for society to be remade. And when the ethics of a people decline because of their religious posture, then you're going to have a decline in society in a more dangerous society, and it's going to get kind of ugly. The response is not to become more brutal and commit one injustice after another in the name of justice. The, the ultimate solution is only going to be through the advance of the kingdom of God and the regeneration of people and Christ making them new creatures in, in Christ. So the elements of coercion from a humanistic point of view is the only way you're going to get what you want. If this dog won't listen to you, you put the dog on a leash and you punish the dog if the dog doesn't obey. But you don't get a faithful dog that way. You get a dog that as soon as the leash is off, he's going to run the other way. So I think it's interesting that by and large, the church has not really examined what Jesus said was primary. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything else will be added unto you, what, you'll, what you want to eat, what you, what you need to wear, where you'll live. And one of the things that your father's teaching really helped me with, Mark, 
was to understand that the word righteousness could as easily and accurately be translated as justice. So in, in your opinion, how does God want us to pursue justice? Well, to be just ourselves. It's uh, justice is righteousness because uh, they are the same words in, in the Hebrew and, and the uh, Greek. Justice is righteousness. It's godliness. And the only way we truly make people godly and make them behave better is that they're made new creatures by the grace of God. We're not going to do that by a prison system. We're not going to do that by stricter laws, although sometimes strictness is important in the law. It's not going to be through our criminal justice system, and it's certainly not going to be if we take shortcuts to justice that seem to accomplish an immediate effect that only compound things. Even when we get convictions, what do we do with those convicts? We put them in prison, which is just a breeding ground for more crime. That's been amply demonstrated for for many, many years now. And so we compound the problem when we don't do things God's way. We don't improve things. And I might add, Andrea, that an important element against this uh, thing that uh, confession was not sufficient for conviction and the prevention of torture, this was incorporated in the U.S. Constitution because of the abuse of this throughout history. The Fifth Amendment forbade anyone from being compelled to testify against themselves. And yet, it's very common for Christians, conservatives, to think, well, somebody pleaded the fifth, that means they're guilty. It means I don't have to testify against myself, that it means that you are required to provide the evidence. And this is why there's a video that used to be on YouTube and probably is still there. It's don't talk to the police. And it's probably 40 or 50 minutes long. And it was a law professor in a class telling people why you should never talk to the police, even if you're innocent, particularly if you're innocent. And he goes into reasons why you shouldn't answer questions to the police. It's about self-incrimination. You could very easily accidentally incriminate yourself just by saying something that that might be slightly factually incorrect, then you're labeled a liar. There's no advantage to you because your testimony cannot extricate yourself from legal implications, and it can only hurt you. And then after he was done, a cop got up, and a cop said the same thing, why you shouldn't talk to the police, and why it doesn't do you any good to talk to the police. In other words, if you're accused of a crime, they should have witnessed the crime, they could testify that you broke the law, and that's enough for conviction. You don't have to answer their questions. And because they're, the intent of their questioning is to get you to admit, because confession is accepted as an admission of guilt and uh, as evidence of guilt. And it, it ought not to be. There should be ample evidence. For instance, if a cop stops you for speeding, it's because he observed you and he clocked you speeding. And therefore, your admission that you were speeding shouldn't really be necessary if it should have to go to court. And that's true in more serious cases as well. And the reason why this is important is because very often prosecutors want to go for the low-hanging fruit. And 
if you are in the wrong place at the wrong time, you become a suspect. And even if you're innocent, your inclination is to give all the information you know because you're completely innocent, and yet you can incriminate yourself. It's a, it's a. I think it was titled "Don't Talk to the Police," and it was it's well worth watching. And it's not a, a liberal attack on the police, which I, I don't approve of, but it is it is explaining why. You should not be required to incriminate yourself. If the police have evidence against you, they will use it. Yes. The best safeguard for any individual and then family and the church in general is to know God's law. If you are a member of the kingdom of God, if you are a child of God, and God is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, no matter what other jurisdictions you travel in, you're never outside the jurisdiction of Jesus Christ. And so, as you pointed out, much of our founding legal principles had to do with God-given rights, and that Fifth Amendment is a reflection of the idea that confession is not an acceptable item to be used against someone. So the more people understand biblical law and then understand how a lot of the law that we look back to, like our constitution and and the common law, has everything to do with the application of biblical law, then we'll discover when it comes time to vote or comes time to back a particular candidate, whether or not that candidate's positions are in keeping with God's law. And I'll give you an example, and you probably are well aware of it. The candidate who says, I'm going to be tough on crime, and we're going to build more prisons. Well, as a Christian, if you know that prisons are an unbiblical way to deal with offenses against God and against society, then it doesn't matter how apparently terrible the world is, solving it with a humanistic solution will not make it any better. Right. And we have a lot of injustice in, in the name of justice today. That, and that's not just true of our justice system. It's true in one area after another. And it's, it's largely because of the, our Christian past that we, we kind of depreciate very often that we have a lot of these protections because our Constitution grew out of the experience of, of centuries and it grew out of the understanding of the common law. A lot of our what we call our principles of you know justice and Western justice came from Christendom's understanding of these ideas. Just to give an, an example that's related to the Fifth Amendment is Fifth Amendment and uh, right against self-incrimination is spousal abuse. Why would a spouse not be required to testify? That's because the idea of the sanctity of the marriage covenant and the marriage relationship was held in high esteem. And therefore, a spouse could not be required. It was the spouse had the same immunity from prosecution as did the individual. And when these things begin to break down, we lose a lot of these traditional protections that developed over centuries of Christendom in the common law. People don't understand the common law. They were these common principles of justice 
that had been grown into widespread use. The common law was never a codified body of law. They were principles of justice, but they were based upon imperfect application of biblical law. And they were very important for the development of, of uh, Western law, Western thought, and the United States Constitution. And increasingly, we've, we've switched now over to statutory law. If it's not on the books, it doesn't really exist. And that's been a very dangerous thing. And now we, we see with legislatures making laws just about year round in most jurisdictions, but we have this constant trend towards one more piece of legislation, a line here, a line there, and nobody really understands all the legislation that they're subject to. And therefore, you, most cops can say, I can convict anybody of something if I wanted to. Right. Over the past year and a half, when with riots, so we, we, we've had the bad guys or the vandals or the people who are anarchists up against the police. And so that's the combatants that you might see if the video camera is rolling. And so you'll hear a lot of people say, I back the blue. I back the blue. Well, we shouldn't be backing the blue unless the blue is godly, unless the blue is following biblical law, because just by saying this one group of people is wrong, which a lot of people will do nowadays, you can't say then this group of people is always right if you don't use the template of God's law. The same thing happens with military. I see a lot of people having their children go up and say to someone who's in uniform, thank you for your service. Well, I understand the sentiment, but have those servicemen carried out things like torture, like killing innocent civilians? I mean, if we're not going to evaluate it by God's law, then how are we going to know whether something is right or wrong? Right. Patriotism often turns to a nationalism where we just have to support our side, period. And you could question, go through a list of all the wars that we've been involved in, and you might be hard-pressed to find more than one or two that really were uh, biblical from the sense of, of absolutely necessary. Wars are usually caused by uh, evil men. And those evil men are sometimes on either side who think they can get an advantage by going to war and get ahead by going to war. Uh, a lot of great evils were even, even in World War II, you know, the bombing of Dresden, Germany was militarily unnecessary. And it was a mass killing of civilians that had little, if any, strategic military uh, importance. And this trend towards mass killing of civilians, and you can, you can obviously question the atomic weapons we used to end the war, uh, it really began in earnest with the American Civil War. And the attack on the South and the defeat of the South was because they went after the civilian population and began destroying the infrastructure. You know, bridges and homes were burnt, uh, crops were burnt, barns were built, animals were slaughtered and, and, and such. In other words, just impoverish and destroy so that the, the economy is so devastated. But this is an attack on the civilian population that 
is completely unjust. So it's a, there's a snowball effect when you start disobeying God's law. It, it, we can identify very often, if when we're Christians, the effects of immorality, personal immorality in one person's life. It destroys them. It takes them in a certain direction. It destroys their personal relationships and it destroys and harms others around them. Well, then if you extend that out into how it affects that family, it, it rips that family apart. But there are social implications to that. And these extend outward as people are ignoring God's law or outwardly violating God's law. And this happens not just in the criminal justice system, but it happens in warfare. It happens in law. It happens in education. It happens in the arts. We create a tangled mess of basically paganism that is difficult to extricate ourselves from. And that's why the only hope really is, we've said before, is the moving of the Spirit of God and the advance of the gospel. And God has to change people before they change. And that's why Chalcedon has emphasized so much the importance of God's law, because the message of Chalcedon is really to Christians saying, well, how do you obey God? How does society obey God? How do we understand, if we are to seek first righteousness, how do we understand uh, what righteousness is going to look like? And this we get from understanding God's laws, because justice is God's and righteousness belongs to God. We don't define it. He does. And therefore, there can't be a real change in society until Christians have a different attitude about what their obligation to God is. I agree. The more I see what's happening in the last year and a half, I realize it won't be solved by just get this guy into office at any level. Or if we just get this law on the book, it goes back to what it says in the Old Testament. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, repent of their sins, then I will heal and restore and help them build up again. Not an exact quote, but you know what verse I'm referring to. I think the takeaway from this is learn biblical law and Chalcedon's made that relatively easy, I would say. You can access all three of the volumes Dr. S. Juni wrote on biblical law. Volume one basically goes through the Ten Commandments in very detailed form in terms of all the manifestations of how the, for example, thou shalt not steal manifests itself. More than just the cookie jar, more than just somebody stealing from somebody else's purse or bank account. Then volume two is called Law and Society, which gives a view of what society looks like when biblical law prevails or when humanistic law prevails. And then volume three basically categorizes all the laws that go together in terms of what does God have to say about agriculture? What does God have to say about business? And by the time you're done with all those three, with the added benefit of being able to listen to audio lectures on volume one that go through every single section of the book, you have not so much 
I have all the answers or Mark, you have all the answers, but we have a framework in which to identify what course of action will bring about God's blessing and what course of action will do just the opposite. Right. And you mentioned the fact that an election is not going to solve things. I think something that has become increasingly evident in in recent years is that, in fact, our political systems are failing and they're not only not going to save us, they may be beyond reclamation themselves. People have a very different attitude today than they did, say, 50 years ago. People 50 years ago really looked to Washington for answers. They really believed that they could improve things and that, that what was going on in Washington was going to improve things. Now it's just a struggle for power and who's going to control. And it's increasingly obvious that what's going on in Washington is is entirely partisan and it's about controlling the reins of power. And I don't know how that's going to be broken. I hope it is broken, but I don't think we're just going to walk back the evils that Washington has committed and that it represents. And we can't tell how history is going to play out, but it helps if your eschatology is such that you believe that uh, God is really in charge and that Christ is on the throne. And that whatever failures we see as a society or as a nation will be ultimately used as a means of furthering something better, that is the kingdom of God, in one way or another. And we wish sometimes we had a crystal ball to see the exact direction things were coming to put our efforts where it would help that, but we don't. So all we can do is be faithful and to stick to God's word. And we can't uh, be so partisan that we say, well, we're against this, therefore whatever is done against it must help you know justice in some way and we have to stick to a concept of justice as righteousness we do what is right and that might mean criticizing our party our government uh, our justice system our educational system our economic system we have to stand for righteousness or we're just part of the problem in that smaller book your dad wrote law and liberty I wouldn't say every chapter, but most of the chapters end with his observation that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Now, what you just said might make some people say, oh, wow, well, if Washington is irredeemable or our current system is irredeemable, then we're really lost. And then you have an eschatology of defeat or depression. However, The scripture says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. That means that when the Lord builds the house, or when we build according to God's word, then our labors are not in vain. So we can be very hopeful that whatever we do on a local level with that area that God has placed us, that we will derive God's blessing. So I'm not surprised that you don't know how it's all going to play out exactly in the details. Well, I don't know that anybody does, but we do know that if we're faithful, then God's will, God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that should be what we're all going for. We'll know we're making progress when 
men are self-consciously and publicly stating that, you know, God's will must be done and that we need to be more Christian in our perspective and in our attitude. It's not going to happen under the table. It's not going to happen accidentally or through a back door. We need to hope for revival because if we're not heading for revival, we're heading for for judgment. So we're either heading back to God or we're away from God. Going away from God leads only to judgment. But God is also merciful. He's a God of judgment and and, uh, evil doesn't prevail, but he's also a God um, of mercy. We don't know what's ahead. A lot, a lot of people will predict that you know judgment is ahead. Well, in some ways, yes, judgment is. But God has a way of recognizing through repentance and faith and blessing it, even in the face of judgment. And there are multitude of examples of it. He sent his people into slavery in Babylon, but he promised them, even when they were resistant to the idea that he would bring back a remnant and he would start over and even rebuild his temple. So there's a bright future ahead. I forget the name of the missionary uh, offhand who said, uh, might have been William Carey, I forget. He said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. So there's a bright future ahead. And so if we're going through tough times, it's because of our sin, not because God has failed us or God has given up on, on his kingdom. Exactly. We're getting to the end of our time. I think something that you said made me realize that if we're not in all this or we're not in, we've bought in completely to God's program, then we're only going to be able to evaluate how it affects us. Will we be hungry? Will we be imprisoned? Will we lose our status? But when you look at God's overall plan and acknowledge that you're part of the plan, and that you didn't write your lines the way you think you wrote your lines. God has a plan for what you're to accomplish while you're here walking earth before you go to heaven. So it shouldn't just be, well, the answer can only be if it ends up good for us. It has to be a much higher view, a more expansive view that says God's will, not mine. Don't you agree? Right. Even the disciples didn't really understand much of what Jesus was talking about. And that's clear from the Gospels. Until after the resurrection, Jesus spent time with them. He put it in perspective. And they were very different people in the book of Acts than they were in in the Gospels. And now they were active. Now they were out pushing the message because they had a better understanding of the big picture. And I think we're most Christians today, and I would include myself in this, are kind of in the position of the, the disciples in the Gospels. They believe, but they don't really understand how anything's going to play out. And when the Spirit moves, I think big things can happen very fast. And that has happened in history. And that needs to be our prayer, ultimately. Not that this will happen at the Supreme Court, or this person will be elected, or anything like that. But ultimately, the Spirit of God really causes a revival and a rapid advance of His kingdom. Hard to argue with that. I think I most everybody listening hopefully will give an amen. Well, thanks, Mark. I appreciate you taking the time kind of expounding on this because it's, it's an area that people 
need to at least be aware of and then reflect and see how their sentiments have been in line or not with God's word. All right, Andrea, good talking with you. Listeners, as always, if you'd like to be in touch with suggestions or comments on this podcast or any previous ones, you can reach us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.